Ah, dreams. We all dream when we're asleep. Sometimes we remember our dreams and sometimes we don't. But what lies behind the mystery of dreams? We will explore that. Dreams have always mesmerized us by their sheer mystery of paradoxes, at times reflecting deeper truths, at times seeming to be like nonsense, and all intermeshed like a snowball. Psychologists, poets, romantics, all talk about dreams. Let's dig deeper. A dream gives us a glimpse into what is going on behind the curtain, under the dashboard, into our inner subconscious or superconscious psyches. So please join me as we discuss the Kabbalah of dreams and learn about a dimension of yourself that often remains concealed on the surface level. Hello, Simon Jacobson here. We will be speaking about the Kabbalah of dreams. This program is dedicated by Seth Yakatan in honor of his beloved mother, Chaya Basara's yard site on November 22nd. Dreams. Dreams from the beginning of time and history have always mystified us. What is a dream? Many dreams we don't even remember. We just remember something happened. And those that we do remember are often, are often entangled, embedded, concealed with all kinds of paradoxes. Where do they come from, these dreams? And what do they tell us? What do they teach us? This is what we're going to explore. And briefly, just as an introduction, we all know we have our conscious minds and we have our superconscious, that which we're not aware of but lies behind the curtain or under the dashboard. And a dream indeed is a glimpse into a deeper part of our minds where things are not necessarily always rational and structured as it is when we're awake and thinking in a in a structured and an organized manner. So the mere fact that they're not organized, the mere fact that they're an entanglement of so many different elements, often a narrative that combines all kinds of different details, some things even completely absurd, that itself is a revelation of a reality that is not defined by the structures that we're so accustomed to. And that's very much part of the mystique of dreams. So let's begin with a Talmudic statement that says the following. There is no dream without nonsense. On the other hand, every dream has a glimpse, has a taste, gives us a peek into a deeper reality. 
The challenge is that they all come mixed together and it's hard to distinguish what is nonsense, what is not nonsense. Then, of course, there are those that get obsessed with dreams and they have difficulty taking care of their lives when they're awake. So you have to also put it into context. To just focus on dreams and not focus on the responsibilities of your conscious awake, waking hours can also be a distortion. So things have to be balanced. So the way the Kabbalists, the mystics, explain the psychology of the human psyche is that there are generally two dimensions. There's the conscious self, and I'm going to call it the superconscious self. Some psychologists use the word unconscious or subconscious. Let's use superconscious and conscious. Because why am I calling it superconscious? Because it's above conscious. It's not below conscious. It's not sub. It's above. It precedes consciousness. Which means that in our minds, there's what we're aware of. What you're aware of right now, listening to me speaking, or other things that you may be reading, or conversations you have, or just your general thought process, is your conscious life. Now, conscious doesn't mean you're conscious of it every moment, but it's always accessible. Listen, we have millions of ideas in our mind. You're not accessing them all the time, but think of it like your hard drive. All you need to do is press a button. You say, oh, I want to, I want to think now about something I began thinking about yesterday, or a year ago, or 10 years ago. That's the conscious. The difference is, is it conscious as in, is it active? We'll call it active consciousness, or is it inactive consciousness? But then there's another dimension, which is the superconscious. That remains always beneath the scenes. This can include events, positive or traumatic ones from childhood that you don't even remember, but you see its effect on your life. This includes, in general, a step that precedes consciousness, as the Kabbalists explain it. Just to give analogy, an analogy, think of a faucet of water. So water is dripping out of the faucet, but that's not where it originates. It originates from the pipes from the, that connect to the main, that connect to a reservoir, which itself drew water from rain or however it was collected. So we're the, on the conscious level, that's the, the water running out of the faucet. The superconscious is not seen. So when you think of an idea, you say, where did that idea come from? And I'm not talking about an idea that has already entered the inactive or the active consciousness. Where did the idea come from? Like a flash. It comes from a mysterious place. We're calling that the superconscious. In the language of the Kabbalists, the hidden wisdom, Chachmistema or Moichinstema. Just to give it a contemporary uh, example, I remember reading a book, I think it was called Storming Heavens. Uh, America's love affair or romance with LSD. You'll, you'll, you'll see in a moment the connection. So it was, um, it was in the late 40s, professor, uh, wasn't a professor, he was a chemist, worked in uh, Dr. Hoffman, Albert Hoffman, I believe his name was, worked in Switzerland, in uh, either for Pfizer or one of the pharmaceutical companies, and he was seeking to find a drug that would induce or simulate madness, what was called madness in those days. Today we would call it chemical imbalance or other names for mental health uh, challenges. He was looking for something, and he was trying to create a synthetic drug that would induce it. Now, you couldn't just experiment on anybody, so he experimented on himself. 
And he, um, what he did was, because he didn't know what would happen, he was always at risk. He may take something that would really kill him. So he had the tape recorder, wherever in his, both in his lab and in his home, as well as notebooks. So in case something was happening, some type of shift of consciousness, he would immediately record and write notes as long as he was conscious. So that way, no matter what happens, there'd be a record of what took place. Well, long story short, he experimented, and he finally came with some type of chemical combination, which would later be called LSD, which is a, an acronym for the chemicals that he had mixed together. And he was going to lunch, going home for lunch, when he had ingested this chemical, this synthetic, and he was riding on his bicycle in Switzerland, and, was, and, and the way he documents it is that he was riding on a bicycle in a very beautiful uh, hedges were on both sides. It was a path that went with many, many trees and hedges. And he was going home. As he was driving, on his, riding on his bicycle, he suddenly feels some shift. He looks around and the hedges are beginning to pulsate. And he looked at the sky and the sky began to change colors. And slowly he was having this first psychedelic experience, which he didn't know at the time what it was. Basically seeing things in colors and sounds and everything being exaggerated and amplified. And he was like completely blown away. By the time he got home, he was in a stupor, he was in a state. And he turned on the recorder and took notes, whatever he was capable, and then he passed out. But then he was revived. This was the first LSD experience, acid trip. Now what he wrote down was, and I don't recall the details, was that to him this was a peek into the superconscious. He didn't, he didn't use the word superconscious. Where things melt and do not have the regular structures that we're usually accustomed to. An example I gave earlier about the faucet. When the faucet is running, it's regulated, it's, it's gauged, it's flowing in a very organized way. But behind the scenes lies this reservoir of water. So it's not one big jumble, but it's far greater than the conscious flow, which is a limited flow that we can relate to. So in a sense, really madness, as he called it, or that state of accessing that is actually closer to reality than our conscious minds. Our conscious minds are like a faucet. It's actually limited reality. But the fact is we cannot exist in the superconscious because it would be too overwhelming. And you see, in a sense, when we say there's a very thin line between madness and genius, what are we saying? We're saying essentially is that, um, is that madness is things so disorganized that it overwhelms you. Genius is that channel is open, the faucet is open, but not to the point where it breaks and it just begins to flood. You know, when you see a faucet breaks down, then it just floods. But let's say it's almost to the point of flooding, that would be genius. You go a little step over and it turns into madness. Another example, you may have seen that TED talk in the book, The Stroke of Genius, by a neuroscientist. And she talks about her stroke. She, was, she went into neuroscience because of her brother had schizophrenia. So that was her passion, wanted to understand the mind. And then she had a stroke, a stroke that affected her left brain. And therefore, the right brain was functioning, but the left brain wasn't. Now, the difference between the left brain and the right brain, she explains, the left brain is the details. 
Let's take an example. When you're brushing your teeth, you have a brush, you have your fingers, you have your mouth. If you're on the left brain, she said, I, I was able to see the toothbrush, the toothpaste, but I could not take it to me because I couldn't focus on the details. The right brain connects everything. So in effect, when we're do, anything we're doing has two aspects to it. There's the details that are necessary, but then there's the connection. Like brushing your teeth is not just brushing, it's not just taking a brush. It's taking the brush to your mouth. There's something that needs to give, create a sequence. If you only had details, they'd all be disconnected. So very much life is a combination of details, but then there's a so-called a conglomerate, a synergy between the details. The right brain focuses on the synergy, the left brain focuses on the details. And you need both. You need a vision to build a house, but then you need bricks and mortar and all the details to, bri- to build it. One without the other is lacking. So with, with, in a healthy human being, they both work together. In a sense, the, the peek into the right brain gives you a sense of where everything melts into one, where you just see the oneness of things. Well, let's bring, bring it back to dreams. A dream is a peek into that superconscious. That's what a dream is. And that's precisely why it doesn't make sense to us. Because we are used to structure. If someone said to you right now, read a 500-page book in a minute, you'd say, no, I can't read it in a minute. I'm not just talking about the speed of reading. The way our minds process is line by line, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, until we finish the story, the narrative. That's how the mind is able to contain things. If in some way the mind did not have those compartmentaliza- that compartmentalization, we would go crazy. In many ways, depression and high levels of anxiety is somewhat of a chemical imbalance. What's a chemical imbalance? Think of the mind as compartments. Something really negative happens to somebody. A loss, a death, a trauma. So at the moment, we're overwhelmed and shocked. Very difficult to function in, in trauma. What happens in time, in, in, in healing, the catharsis, that we begin to compartmentalize a loss, a death that happened a year ago, two years ago. Yes, it's still in our consciousness, in our inactive consciousness or, an act, or active one, but it's the compartmentalization of our chemicals allow us to let it recede and we can focus on other things in life. Imagine you cannot in any way lose the, the, in any way minimize or diminish the intensity of a traumatic experience. That there's no, we don't, it's, that there's no forgetfulness. It's as if you're living in it, even if it happened 20 years ago. What they call post-traumatic syndrome, PTSD. What happens, the trauma is still living with you. That means that the compartments are not completely compartmentalized. We need compartmentalization to be sane. So in a way, limited consciousness is critical for our own sanity. Because we need to be able to say, okay, that happened, it's true, it was a very negative experience, but now I'm not there. So in general, life then is based on structure. So yes, you do have memories, and you do have some general narrative, but it breaks into details. The left brain, right brain, and we need both. If somebody is in a place where there's no compartments, they can simply not function. That's where people's minds are racing, they completely lose it because so much is happening. It's, so the other side of it is people who compartmentalize very well. The genius, or don't use the word genius, people who are smarter 
or their minds work in a more efficient way, they have both compartments, but the compartments are not as tight. So they're not very now. They connect things very well, but not to the point where they lose the compartments. So like anything in life, the human body, for example, is made up of many components. The healthy body has to have, each component has to do what it needs to do. The mind, the heart, the liver, the lungs, and so on. If they would lose sight of their own identity, we would not be able to function. On the other hand, if they were completely separate entities, you wouldn't have one cohesive, healthy body. So that's the, the, the power of it is the harmony within the diversity. It's as diverse as it gets. If someone did not know better and they saw a, a human being dissected, God forbid, they, and, and didn't know, an alien would see that, a Martian would see that, they'd never know this, these things all come together. So you'll see any beautiful structure, whether it's a man-made structure or it's a natural structure, it consists of these two elements. The structure and the details, but they speak to each other. Like a conductor of a symphony, different musicians, but the conductor is keeping a cohesiveness, so it's one story, one narrative made up of details. Our waking hours is focused far more on the structure. Our, when we're asleep and the conscious mind, so-called, also goes to sleep, that what opens up is the mysterious world of the superconscious. And one of the ways it expresses itself is through dreams. A dream is an experience of the superconscious. The problem is it doesn't work by the rules of, of structure. So a dream can be complete nonsense, things that, you know, why are you even dreaming that? Or it can be a combination of events that happened today, yesterday, 10 years ago, and then suddenly gets all connected in a very strange way. It's not even a narrative. You'll have characters that don't know each other, but in your dream they'll come together. The first thing is we need to know that don't try to make sense of it. Because if you're trying to take the superconscious and put it into a conscious structure, it won't work. What you want to do, if you are indeed analyzing a dream, is want to dissect and say, okay, let me see what elements I can extract and maybe learn something from it. But as I said earlier, it's also critical not to become consumed with it. I know people whose life is not working out and they become desperate or it's even somewhat of sensationalism. Interpret my dream. People come to me all the time. So I remember my teacher, my mentor saying to someone, before we interpret dreams, let's first figure out what we do when we're awake. Now, of course, we have dreams. We have dreams in the Bible, Jacob's dream. We have Joseph's dreams, interpretation of dreams. But that's only in addition to a responsible conscious life. If you don't have your conscious life in order, to go to dreams can be a form of escapism. Just like many things, when things are not going well, we escape. So it has to be put into context. On the other hand, dreams do give us a glimpse into that superconscious state. And it has, as I said, sometimes you'll never figure it out. Sometimes you could get something. There have been times, I know from my own experience, I had a very intense question. I went to sleep with it. And during the night, during the dream, something came to me. And you wake up and say, ah, I got it. Now, it's not necessary in a very structured way, as I said. It's like it can be completely enmeshed in a million other things that are going on. But some glimpse, something came from a deeper place. And in truth, the Talmud also says an interesting thing, that a person dreams at night about what they think by day. So if you focus on something by day, 
It's likely the dream, it'll appear in the dream. It's not always the case. Because it's interesting, dreams will sometimes focus on something that you really matter to you, not necessarily you thought about it by day. I remember thinking about this once. You know, something I really was concerned about during the day, and by night I never dreamt about it. I dreamt about something else. And then I realized that something else has significance. But it's a complicated process, and there's really no formula. It's just we need to know that it is a glimpse into that reality, and that's one of the reasons we're given dreams, is to realize that there's more to life than what meets the eye. There's more to life than the structured conscious mind that we have and feelings. And we're getting, it's a gift to know there's another reality. Whether we can understand that reality or not is another discussion, is another issue. But the fact that there is something that makes you tick. Now it makes total sense, we all know that. When people, for example, have uh, an anger streak or other, uh, other uh, virtues or vices in their personality, they're most often, I'm not talking about superficial things, they're most often coming from a deeper, uh, superconscious place, whether we know it or not. So it's not, you don't need a dream to recognize that like anything has a behind the scenes, what's going on under the dashboard, as I said, behind the curtain. But a dream is an actual glimpse into that. So I would like to say that a dream is also an humbling experience because it humbles you into realizing that what you know about life and what you know about your own structured life and the patterns and routines, the things you depend upon, is only the tip of the iceberg. And that's a good analogy here, the tip of the iceberg. It's what you're aware of. It's not what you're not aware of. It's not the superconscious. And I should add, in the Kabbalistic writings, they talk about two levels of superconscious. Which the truth is there are many more, infinite levels, just like you speak about microscopic or subatomic particles. So the sub-sub and the sub-sub-sub, who knows how far down the rabbit hole it goes. So the same thing in the superconscious. There's the superconscious, the super-superconscious. So superconscious, I talked before about active and inactive consciousness. There's also, in a sense, an active superconscious and a, and a completely fundamentally concealed superconscious. What's, what do I mean by saying that? There, there are things in the superconscious that are beyond consciousness, but they're not completely off limits, which means you will get a glimpse. They will emerge. They may, may take effort. With, with effort and with a certain commitment, you're able to draw from there. That's why a person who really struggles and exerts themselves can open up the channels of the faucet and more flow of ideas will flow in from the superconscious. But then there's a level of superconscious that really remains beyond conscious altogether. And that's the way it should be. Now, of course, there's a desire, a temptation to want to taste it, but it's like the very fact, as soon as you become aware of it, it's no longer there. Like mercury. That is why when Moses asked God, show me your face, show me your glory, and God says, you cannot see my face and live but I will show you my back. I will show you a dimension that you could contain. But the dimension that's beyond, the only way you can experience it is by not looking. So it doesn't mean you don't experience it, but you have to get yourself out of the way because we want, I want to own, like conscious mind, I understand something. The superconscious is really, there's no I. And that's really the purpose. That's why I call it humbling. It teaches us humility that it's not just about you. So let's talk a moment about intelligence in that way. Most people see the mind as being our po most powerful asset. I understand things. I'm able to process, evaluate, and come away with some conclusions. 
maybe I can build a business and make money. I can innovate. That's where the mind is. And it's a very powerful tool, very, very powerful tool. However, there's something else about intelligence that many of us don't focus on. It's not an end in itself. Intelligence is here to help us reveal a higher truth. Keep that in mind. It's not just you're a smart guy or smart woman and you're able to innovate. And then whatever that, the benefits you get from that. Or you just are able to see things more than others because of your intelligence. But it's about experiencing a higher truth. So in a way you can say, I understand something, or the idea is understood. Is the idea capturing me, or am I capturing the idea? Do I own the idea, or does the idea own me? So there's one level where I understand, and then there's another level where you get lifted and absorbed into understanding. There's an expression by the prophet Isaiah, he says, that in the future it will be a world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Think about it, the waters cover the sea. Knowledge is compared to water, but you can have water on, the la- on land. That's like conscious intelligence. When the waters cover the sea means the waters are dominant and the seabed is not seen. In other words, knowledge has absorbed you and you have become part of a higher knowledge, a higher reality. And that's where the individual ego, and I don't mean ego necessarily in a negative, in a negative way, the individual identity becomes absorbed and completely consumed with something greater than yourself. You know, think of staring at a natural wonder, beautiful piece of art, listening to exquisite music. What happens? You sometimes get so absorbed in it. You're reading a book, you don't even realize you're turning pages. You've lost yourself in the experience, in a good way. It's one of the most gratifying experiences. And then when you come out of it, you suddenly realize that was magic. Being in the zone where the object and the subject converge and melt into one. The deepest experiences of love, of intimacy, of truth, is when you become one with it. In other words, it's a state of being, not just a, an act. It's a noun, not just a verb. So love, love can be a verb. Sometimes they say, I'm not sure who coined it, but I use this a lot, love for men is often an action. And for a woman, it's a state of being. The highest level of experience is when it becomes a noun. You become one with it. Not just you're experiencing it. So let's say you're watching, you're looking at the Niagara Falls or you're looking at other something beautiful. So you can be like a journalist looking at it and saying, wow, that's great. And saying, and being, and, and, and at the same time, observing yourself experiencing this. Or you can become so absorbed you don't even notice. You can't even talk about it. You can't even document it. Because you have lost your own individual identity in the experience. That is what the superconscious is ultimately like. So dreams in that sense are a bridge that help us a glimpse into there. And when we work on it, and real work, not just the, not just the dream and dream interpretation, we actually can open or expand our conscious channels, our conscious faucets and structures to be able to, to allow in deeper states of superconsciousness. But to do that effectively, you can't just go there with the same identity as you are on the conscious level because on the conscious level, everything is, as I said, compartmentalized. To enter that place, you need to really lose yourself, like surrender into the experience. Now, surrender, many people don't like the word. It sounds like weakness. But here I mean surrender in the beautiful way. 
where you give you you essentially suspend your own self in order to experiencing something greater than yourself. That's truly when the mind is at its best. So yes, there's an intelligent part of the mind that understands, it analyzes, it evaluates, it reflects, it connects ideas, it innovates. But then there's the higher level of intelligence, which is where you're seeking a higher truth. And indeed, when you allow that, that channel to open up, the bridge between the conscious and the superconscious, you will innovate better and you'll understand better because it's not understanding alone, it's experiencing, it's drawing down, channeling a higher reality, a higher truth. And that's how the Kabbalists explain the relationship between they call wisdom, chachma, and chachmistema, the hidden wisdom, the conscious and the superconscious. And indeed, the super-superconscious as well, which does not manifest in a conscious way, but it's still at work. It's just not working on our terms. So in a way you can say, the conscious is on our terms, it's compartmentalized, it's structured, I understand it. The superconscious is you're letting go and experiencing something beyond yourself, and the super-supra is completely on terms of the truth itself. Complete truth itself, middle level is where you are suspending yourself and allowing yourself to be absorbed in the truth, and you want to draw all that down into the consciousness. Now, in the Kabbalistic and the Hasidic writings, there's a lot of discussion on this, because ultimately, this is how we grow. This is how we become great people. This is how we achieve excellence. But as you see, it's a journey, and dreams are one part of it. They're giving us a, a, a glimpse. It's like giving you a peek, a sneak peek, into a world that's beyond our regular structures. And sometimes we could find some meaning in it and interpret it, and many times we can't. But that's fine. Even if you can't, it's also a peak. And maybe it's just the humbling fact that there's another reality that you don't understand. Nothing wrong with that. It's like standing on a, on a mountain where you're no longer on a plateau or in a valley, and you see a vast horizon beyond your scope. You look into the sky to the heavens, solar systems, beyond solar systems. Richard Feynman, the physicist, spoke about the vastness. That vastness itself is a humbling experience. It means there's a reality greater than ourselves. He came to the conclusion that he was wondering why, that is, is there a God? Why would God create so much empty space or empty so much space that nobody's using? But the mere fact that it exists in such an enormous, infinite way an infinite expanding universe, that alone tells us that the higher reality, the higher truths are beyond us. And that opens us up to experiencing that. So not everything has to be contained and understood. Sometimes the mystique of something is precisely what you need. And it's the greatest blessing. You try to understand as much as you can, and then you open yourself up and surrender and allow yourself to be absorbed in something beyond you. When you hear a beautiful piece of music, that's what happens. You don't need to evaluate it and, 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 um, and dissect it. In many ways, you compromise its very integrity, its purity, when you start doing that. Mystique is something great to embrace. And dreams, the mystique of dreams, open us up to that reality, as do other experiences that open up the door, the hidden door. William Blake said, as the doors of perception are cleansed, when the doors of perception are cleansed, you see everything the way it is. Oneness, infinite oneness. 
So that is really a mystical concept that goes back into the ideas we're talking about. But we don't just want the infinite oneness, we want the infinite oneness channeled into the finite structures of our existence. So that, my friends, is somewhat of a take on dreams, the Kabbalah of dreams, and how it relates to us in our personal lives. And uh, I want to bless you all to open up those channels, be enriched, and allow yourself to be absorbed into higher experiences. Not everything has to be owned. You know, we live in a fast food society, instant gratification. We want to own everything, acquire things, acquisitions. Some things best experience, the truest things, truth, soul, love, higher truths, higher realities, are best experienced when we let go and just allow it to emerge instead of us grabbing. You can't pull a flower out of the ground. You have to let it emerge. And there's a process. Process and emergence. You water it, you nurture it, and then it emerges. That's how the superconscious and the conscious work with each other. So everyone, have pleasant dreams. Learn. Let it open up those channels. Learn from them. And may you experience the greatest vistas of fusing the infinite and the finite. This has been Simon Jacobson, MeaningfulLife.com, where you can find more such materials. This program and all the programs are all archived there. We have a wide array of options. Please check it out, MeaningfulLife.com. I'd love to hear feedback, your thoughts, your comments, your suggestions. And of course, please share this if you see fit, if you see it fit with friends, others, because it's about a ripple effect of each of us as individuals connecting together in a greater synergy. Be well and be blessed. Thank you. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.